In the late 90s, as a teenager, I managed to score a job at a local record store. It was just a small corner of a suburban shopping mall selling chart music. It wasn't part of a chain. The chains probably looked at the hokey suburb where I lived and the hokey mall that served that suburb and decided against it. But it was still the best place to pick up some CDs whilst on your weekly shop, something people used to do. The store was called Countdown Music and it was located in Campsie Centre. Don't worry, it's long gone. It is probably about as small as any shop could be, maybe four metres by three metres all up, including the counter. We sold more 100% hits compilations and Britney Spears singles than anything else, but we still had a healthy so-called alternative section. Look, who knows what alternative needs now, let alone back then. How Oasis and Pantera can be in the same section, I do not know. I can certainly tell you that if you're looking for sense in how a record store sorts their releases, you're an idiot. I was a customer before I worked there and I picked up many fantastic records there. Powderfinger's Internationalist, Ammonia's 11th Avenue, and Cordrazine's From Here to Wherever are the first three that I can think of. That this stuff was just in the local mall says a lot about the 90s. What was nice about working at Countdown Music was that there were some regulars in that shop. People who bought weird indie records that I would order in, who would have nice long chats. They would just hang around and I would be bartender. We'd talk about music news and lightly argue about the quality of some records. Usually they talk, half the time with sentences that started with, so Danny, what did you think of so and so, whilst I was stocking shelves. Some days none of these regulars would come in. But there was one day of the week where I knew there would definitely be at least one person coming through to have a chat. That day was Tuesday, because that was the day the local street press, Drum Media, was released, and every music fan needed their copy of Street Press. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, we look at the world of Street Press. At its simplest... Street Press was the name given to free weekly newspapers that were published all around Australia that covered music and entertainment. There have been dozens of titles over the years, many of them survived for decades. Within their pages were everything a music fan would need to face the week. Gig listings, new album information, the latest music charts, classifieds for people looking for bands, and a letter section that let you complain about why Triple J wasn't as good anymore. They were printed on very cheap newsprint and completely disposable. They could be found everywhere. Music shops, instrument shops, cafes, universities, cinemas, the pub. In some areas, it's probably easier to list places that didn't stock street press. But that wasn't the case in Campsie, in the suburb where I lived and worked. Which is what made Tuesdays so important. As far as I could work out, the little record store where I worked was the only place that stocked drum media. And we also stocked the rival publication, Revolver. But that was Mondays, and people were happy to wait until Tuesday to get both. Nothing against Revolver. I would go on to write for Revolver, but more on that later. My regulars at Countdown Music would plan their weekly mall visit to be on a Tuesday to make sure they were the first to get the news. Even workers from around the mall, I remember one guy who worked at Big W in particular, as well as one of the security guys, they were amongst the first to pick up an issue fresh off the truck. Here's how Tuesdays would go. The courier with a van load of drum media would do the rounds on a Tuesday morning. It would get to where I worked around 11am, and the regulars knew it. 
we kept all our street press near the front, pretty far from the counter in the back. When drum media was late, and the space where we kept it was empty, you would get some guy shout at me from across the small store. Hey, is drum media here yet? You'd get them in a stack, as you see in movies with newspapers, tied up with some packing strip in a cross. Sometimes I'd be too busy to deal with the brand new stack just yet because I was serving a customer. Some of my regulars just took it amongst themselves to cut the packing strip and help themselves. I guess they carried a packing knife. Maybe just on a Tuesday. Either way, they weren't going to wait for me. That's how much people relied on their street press. There were times when I would run out and people would have to travel to another suburb to get something that was free. Because how else would you know what was going on? Until the internet came along and killed street press and everything I talk about in this podcast, street press held a unique place in music writing. I have a few things I will say about the quality of the writing, but their place in the culture, their focus on the local, their ability to get to music fans, was important in the 90s. So important that at one point, I had to ask the drum media courier if he could start leaving me a second stack. Let's do some quick history. Street press were ubiquitous in Australia by the 90s, but they started to take shape in Australia in the 70s and early 80s. Like so many important changes in history, it seems like a lot of people had the same idea around the same time. They also seem to be a very Australian phenomenon. There were other things kind of like it around the world, but the unique geography and the size of the scene in Australia meant we made our own rules. And what worked in Australia, at least in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, was street press. Street press was driven by the local gig listing. The 80s was a great time for live music in Australia. Venues for original Australian music was, more likely than not, your local pub. It's incredible to look at an old issue of street press and see gigs in suburbs that have settled, by the time of this writing, into suburban silence. But that pub gig lifestyle was the rage in the 80s, and that comprehensive gig listing week to week was street press's domain. And it was something no one else could compete with. Monthly magazines couldn't devote the hundreds of pages to gig listings every month. They would go out of date. Covering one area, like one city, every week was what worked. Also, monthly magazines you had to pay for. Street press was free. And it was when the gig guide started running some band interviews or news columns that street press was born. Brisbane's Time Off and Melbourne's TAG, T-A-G-G, which stood for the Alternative Gig Guide, fought it out for who came first as both started in 1979. But TAG was pocket-sized and cost 40 cents, whereas Time Off was associated with the Uni of Queensland, but cost money outside of the university. In the early 80s, Time Off became free for everyone and printed on cheap newsprint. Tag was done by 1981. So in a lot of ways, Time Off worked it out whilst Tag didn't. And University of Queensland can probably take credit for inventing street press. Sydney's On The Street launched in 1981 and it was the bible for Australia's biggest city for many years. Express launched soon after in Perth in 1985. Melbourne followed with two publications, Beat in 86 and Impress in 88. Melbourne had so many gigs that it could sustain two papers, although there was some rivalry. The Age once called it a street press war. But the respective founders of Beat and Impress, Rob First and Andrew Watt, got along just fine. Watt co-founded Impress with Rowena Weber, who passed away in 2019. Leading into the 90s, more titles appeared. 
Adelaide Got Rip It Up in 1989, followed by DB Magazine in 1991. Rave quickly followed in Brisbane in 1991, shortly after Time Off was bought by musician Sean Sennett, who took it to new heights. Canberra Got BMA Magazine in 1992. BMA stands for Bands Music Action. Sydney also got the dance focused 3D world in 1989. The scene was getting big enough to really, really spread. The biggest shakeup of the street press market was in 1990. On the 6th of September of that year, the entire staff of On the Street, the most prominent and important street press in Sydney through the 80s, walked out in protest over pay and work conditions. It was in the same month as the town hall protests about Triple J firing some beloved DJs. Revolution was in the air, so they say. The story goes the entire staff, led by editor Margaret Cott, were celebrating their walkout at the Excelsior Hotel in Surrey Hills when they realised they were all unemployed, but they were also free to start their own paper. A few calls were made to people who would give them office space and advertisers who would stick with them. Ten days later, the first drum media was out with midnight oil on the cover. For Cott and her team, they missed just one week, and for lots of people, drum media was essentially on the street with a new name. And suddenly, Sydney had two street press titles. Sydney had more competition in the 90s. Beat, whose name was very much tied to Melbourne, tried their luck in Sydney. They launched a Sydney edition in 1994, and it closed in 1998. On the Street itself only lasted until 1996. Revolver, the new title, tried to fill the gap in 1997, taking some star from the Sydney version of Beat. It lasted until 2003, when even that title had a walkout. Rob First, who already tried his luck with the Sydney version of Beat, was involved once again. But that's another story set in another decade. There was some jostling, but the 90s were good times, and there was just about enough for everyone. And throughout the 90s, circulation numbers rose as the new alternative market took hold. It's interesting to see the covers. On the Street went from putting Kylie Minogue and Hoodoo Gurus on the cover, to Drum Media, putting UMI, Tumbleweed, Skunk Hour, The Whitlams, etc. Usually before these bands had big hits. In the 90s, making the cover of Street Press meant your band was on the rise more than anything else. There were so many copies of these things, a lot of people got to see you. But let's not pretend for a second that I didn't plan my whole week around Tuesdays either. I'm sure like a lot of people, I had my rituals that revolved around devouring Street Press. And if my usual place didn't have it, I'd need to keep searching until I found one. It was the Bible. There were communal reading in share houses. You would bring it home for your housemates. They were big enough to be read by two people. I used to have cigarette breaks at rehearsal studios and I'd sit with a mate and read together. I'd read the left page, he'd read the right page, and we'd flick through. They were printed on the cheapest newsprint and was always a good source of cat litter tray liners and glass protection in packing. Which is to say, street press was disposable snapshots of a moment. Pop culture. That said, I used to have stacks of them lying about my parents' house. I wasn't the only one who didn't really throw them out. And you talk about it. Reading street press wasn't a closed-off personal experience like reading a book or even, I would argue, reading music magazines. This was an indie pub conversation written down and printed cheaply. I didn't read it cover to cover because no one could. The best thing about street press was it was all about the gigs, and so it had to be comprehensive and hence completely egalitarian. They promoted all the gigs. The hip indie ones were the most visible, but there were blues shows, jazz shows, cover bands, dance nights, and more. 
Everyone was welcome with Street Press. There was no snobbiness. It was through Street Press that I really learned how to be a music fan. Those indie record stores that I love so much, that I talked about in episode 2, they would have remained a mystery to me if it wasn't for drum media. And it was free. I didn't have to have any special access to learn about these places. The information was free in a suburban mall for any kid to pick up. I don't know if I would be the music fan I am today if I had to pay for this information. I simply would not be able to afford to find out what music is out there. It's one of the things I like about the internet too. Libraries gave us power, as the Manic Street Preachers said. That learning continued when I got older and played music. Where do you buy a guitar in this city? Where do you rehearse? How do you get a demo CD printed up? Let me consult Street Press. It's actually one of the reasons Street Press did so well in these years. It tapped into a market of advertisers that had nowhere else. This local industry managed to keep this whole print arm alive. All the labels I've talked about so far took out ads for their bands in these papers. Ruart, Phantom, Waterfront, etc. All the gigs they played were at venues who advertised in these papers. And as a kid, I could get into big all-age gigs, but not the pub scene. But I could learn about them, and I would look at gig listings of places like the Annandale and the Hopetown with envy. I would stand outside the Sando in Newtown on Sunday afternoons, waiting to be 18, while some band I could barely make out played inside. I remember how unfair it felt, and I would dedicate my life to making sure more music was available to all ages, and that I would work on groundbreaking laws that would allow teenagers into pubs to watch original music with a wristband so they couldn't drink. And then I turned 18 and forgot all about that completely. Sorry kids, when you turn 18, you'll understand. I never used the classified section, but I've been tempted. When I was learning bass, I did think about calling up some of the bass player wanted ads. I didn't know at the time that Savage Garden had met because of a vocalist wanted ad in Time Off. They scored two US number one singles in the 90s and sold 23 million albums. If you take every band I'm talking about in this podcast and added up all their sales, it would not even be half of what Savage Garden has sold. You can decide for yourself how you feel about that, but spare a thought for the thousands of vocalists who didn't answer that ad that flicked right past it. And I'm sure there's plenty of bands that you love from the 90s who met via Street Press, or at least, you know, bought an amp of someone via Street Press. The personals were never as fun as you imagined they would be. They were often just lonely people looking for a connection, a friend more than anything more illicit. Indie people, they want someone who gets them more than anything else. Although you would get the odd mysterious message, like someone asking Barry to call them back, or someone ranting about the devil. More fun was the letters column. I keep pointing out that this is before the internet, but nowadays petty arguments are commonplace and kind of boring. Seeing it in print, it was hilarious. It seems so odd now that some ill-thought-out, angry reaction to a CD review or something used to be written on paper, mailed to Street Press headquarters, subbed, and then published. Every week, some local know-it-all would attack specific writers by name. Personal beefs were handled in these pages. Sometimes the back and forth would go several weeks. Local band beefs were the best when some misguided member of a band would write to complain about a review or something. I think the editors took joy in publishing that stuff. Street Press was a weekly beast, made on tight deadlines. And often the people who wrote for them were freelancers and just churning out this stuff. Maybe if it wasn't free, like in the UK with Enemy and Melody Maker, 
they would have paid their writers and gotten a better quality of work. It also made these titles feel so disposable. But over the years, I read hundreds, if not thousands, of the kinds of things you'd find in most music writing around the world. Band interviews, album reviews, live reviews, music news. And I cannot stress enough, all for free. And Street Press also covered what other publications did not. Local up-and-coming bands, independent releases, and news from a very local scene. I imagine most of the bands in the 90s, the very first interview you would ever have would be for a street press. And for some bands, it was the only interview they would ever do. Working on this podcast, I spent many days in the State Library of New South Wales, reading through the archives of drum media and on the street. It started as just wanting to understand the history and the publishing dates and who worked on things, but I soon got lost in the reading. As a snapshot of Australian history, it's unparalleled. So many words written, and plenty of important bands telling their stories in interviews. These publications built relationships too. It's really nice to read interviews with bands like UMI or Clouds who lasted a long time and see them at different times in their careers. You can hear the optimism in an interview of a band just starting to make it, or the defiance of a band who just came back from a failed overseas tour. I read a lot of them back in the day because it was what you did, but I read them today as important artefacts free from nostalgia. Beyond the interview, I really learned a lot from the industry column. Drum Media had a good one, and it would report on the movers and shakers in the Australian labels and Australian business. Nowadays, there are university courses you can take in the music industry, but in the 90s, you had to read industry columns and piece it together. And there were reviewers I loved and trusted, and there was plenty that I hated. Just about every article I could find about street press has a light go with the quality of the writing. Even the people who wrote for street press joke about it. But lots of talented writers passed through street press who did great work. Actual professional writers or people who aspired to make something out of music writing. Music writers whose work I treasure like Clinton Walker, Stuart Coop, Andrew Stafford, Craig Matheson and Andrew Muller. Sure, I liked their work from later when they wrote books, but they started in street press. Same with the photographers like Tony Mott who shot many drum media covers, or graphic artists who had to pump out tour ads week after week. You learnt on the job, pumping it out. It was like the Beatles at the cavern, it built character. We never got it in Sydney, but I have to mention Fred Negro's legendary comic strip for Impress called Pub. Negro was always a troublemaker in various bands. These are bands with names like the Brady Bunch Lawnmower Massacre or the Fuck Fucks. Pub was a bizarre and silly take on Melbourne's music scene. It was always fascinating as an outsider to read. Often I needed a Melbourne friend to decipher the in-jokes and the references. The birthday party's Roland S. Howard once said that you hadn't made it in the Melbourne music scene unless you appeared in pub. There was a tighter connection in the fanzine world, but pub was where the independent music scene and the independent comic scene kind of collided. Fred celebrated a thousand strips in 2009, and there's a Kickstarter to raise money to make a movie about Fred. So I feel more warmly about what was found within the pages of Street Press than most of my older friends, but I also get that along with the rather good, there were the amateurs whose work was subbed, or not, to a tight deadline. I read Street Press for decades, but with very few exceptions, I never took any of the reviews seriously. Unless it was a regular columnist, I usually assumed it was a kid who wanted a freebie. I didn't go there for the opinion writing. Live reviews were often the worse. 
Powderfinger actually wrote a song about it. It's on their massive album, 1998's Internationalist. Called Celebrity Head, it is a takedown of a street press columnist who gets in for free, misses the support bands and favours cliches. It ends with the lyric, I came to do a review, I had to wait in the queue, I just can't believe it. Don't you know who I am? I work the street paper scam. I can't believe you don't read me. Mistakes were commonplace and part of the fun. Mistakes like someone giving me my own street press column at one point. So yeah, even I wrote a column for that second Sydney street press, Revolver, in 2000 and 2001. Absolutely nothing was remarkable about my column or my time there. I only present it as an example of how low the bar could go. At this point, I was putting together a few shows at venues, but more likely I was given the job because all I did was go to gigs and talked about it. A friend of mine, who was the editor, or something, asked me to start writing. The column was called Strum, and it was supposed to cover the power pop scene, the way that someone else might cover the jazz scene. Thing was, I didn't really like that music so much, and I wanted to write about country music instead, so I just started doing that. At one point, my editor, who was also a good friend, called me up. I had been writing for months. He wanted to talk about the column. I said, sure. He said, the writing could be better. And I said, okay. And he said, okay. And that was that. That was all the feedback I ever got. I mean, he was right, and I did try harder after that. I still never checked anything with anyone before it went to print. I never went into the office. I never met anyone who worked there. I met the owner years later who made it clear that he never knew me, but he would be happy to take credit for anything I might do with my career. The best thing I ever wrote for that column was when Radiohead did Kid A, and I described it as when you have a friend and they go to England and stay in a castle and they come back and you don't want to be friends with them anymore. One time, my hero, Tim Rogers, told me he went to the Borders store in Sydney because I wrote about it in my column. That was nice but I have more pleasant memories of reading street press than writing for them. And I wasn't paid either. And looking back, it was a bit exploitative. Just a whole lot of young kids who loved music and publishers and editors who were selling advertising against it and earning all the money. The internet came along and gave young, passionate music writers another outlet and wiped a lot of this practice away, which is what a lot of people did. They just went online with music writing. But I know a lot of passionate musicians and managers who rally against the idea of free gigs that only offer exposure. And I think that should extend to journalists, photographers and young content creators of all stripes. Everyone needs to get paid. And while we're saying goodbye to some of the shittier side of things, let's say goodbye to the shitty practice of paying for reviews. Not all street press did it, but sometimes if you wanted to get exposure, you had to take out an ad. No ad, no reviews. Nowadays, you can just spend that money on Facebook. But that was the power of the industry back then, and street press had some power. And it had that power to lose as well. 
I don't know for sure, but I never got the impression that street press was ever, you know, killing it. Unlike, say, streaming services in recent years who throw lavish parties that show that they are all cashed up, with free drinks and nice food and backpackers turned waiters with dead looks in their eyes, and a young band earning more money in one night than they would in six months. Street press never threw those sort of parties, and street press never seemed to be that cashed up. In fact, they kind of seemed like they were just hanging on. Maybe someone was earning a lot of money, but it didn't show. Maybe everyone was too stressed about the next deadline to stop. So how alternative was street press? Well, they were definitely willing to cover bands that radio stations like Triple J would never touch and would think were too obscure. So more than Triple J. But you know, they just covered everything, especially anything live and local. Like indie record stores, street press in the 90s benefited from this rise of alternative culture, the new Triple J, and money being pumped into the indie scene. There were more and more indie labels, more and more record stores, and more and more advertisers. Drum Media and other street press started sponsoring festivals like Homebake. The whole 90s alternative scene gave street press a massive boost. In exchange, they captured the scene and told their stories. I don't know if street press really broke bands. No one got big because they got on the cover of Drum Media, but there was a bit of indie cred to being in street press. In 2003, the Melbourne band Even, who are wonderful and I will talk a lot about in a later episode, released a best of with the tongue-in-cheek title, The Street Press Years. Collecting songs from their first few albums, the joke is that these are the years where the band is in development. The Street Press Years is a bit like calling your best of, Best of Volume 1. The Street Press Years suggests that it was the step before the glossy mags, TV fame and a house in France. That's what Street Press was about. It's where you paid your dues. But yeah, it probably comes as no surprise that the internet came and destroyed this whole thing. Album reviews, band interviews and music news was also available for free online. Gig listings went online, and every gig listings website is still kind of shit. Street Press survived into the 2000s, but by the middle of the next decade, they were being shut down, sold off, or rebranded. Some switched to fortnightly, and then monthly. Some survived the transition to digital, and exist as an online publication. But the place they served in the culture has changed. Interesting to me that in 2015, in a last gasp, the enemy in the UK turned into a free paper, essentially emulating the Australian street press model. But by then it was too late for the enemy and for Australian street press. It didn't save it. Here in Australia, important local mastheads such as Drum Media, Impress, Time Off, Rip It Up and more have all gone too. I don't want this podcast to be about nostalgia. I want it to be about history. I want to find and discuss what is still interesting about the 90s viewed from today. So I don't miss those papers, and that isn't the point of this episode. I don't care about the smell of cheap old newsprint. But it is terrible that there is no great online archive of this stuff. Thousands of pages of street press were produced every month, capturing the street-level history of Australia's music scene. Decades of our important cultural history is unavailable. The words and articles that got into my mind and the minds of a generation 
that taught us how to love music and be music fans is locked in library archives. And every time someone clears out their garage and they throw out another stack of old street press, the higher chance that that history is really, really gone. The beauty of street press was that accessibility, and now it's anything but. There's probably some rights issues putting it online, like how would you pay the writers? But I know that there was talk about archiving and digitising a lot of articles at one point. I really hope they do. While we were at it, there's no real book or definitive history of this scene. Sean Sennett, who owned Time Off, compiled a book with Simon Groth about their time in street press and interviews that ran in that paper. It is called Off the Record, 30 Years of Music Street Press. There's a small chapter at the start of that book that covers how street press evolved. Clinton Walker has written some great stuff on his website about the evolution of music writing in Australia and street presses in that too. But there's something here, from the drum media walkout to the skin of your teeth deadlines, I think it could be quite exciting. There's surely a lot of rock star anecdotes as well. I hope someone puts it together. Okay, it's outro time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Just Ace podcast. This week, look, the big news is that this little old podcast cracked the top 100 in the Australian Apple podcast charts. I'm getting lots of emails from people discovering episodes one and two as well. So thank you if you've been spreading the word. And if you like the podcast, please share it. Tell a mate, share it online, help us out. Of course, if you haven't listened to these outros before, there is a Patreon. It's a cheap one, just $3 a month. That's close to just the cost of one CD album in the 90s a year. It helps pay for the admin costs and keeps this podcast independent and ad-free. You can also do a one-off tip with Buy Me A Coffee. Or you can buy a poster. I've sold quite a few already. Links are in the description. Go to justace90s.com for show notes, videos, playlists and other stuff about each episode. Or follow me on social media on the same handle. That's justace90s. I've been posting some extra stuff on social media lately. Okay, that's it. Next week, I look at the longest-running music TV show in Australia, and pretty soon, the world. Start again.